taking today the two, what I would, in my own personal experience, deem to be the greatest kingship psalms, Psalm 1-2 and Psalm 110, I believe are a good bookend there of the kingship psalms, although there are others that could be mentioned. If you're using the Pew Bible, that could be found on page 620, Psalm 110. The text tells us here a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter the chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. And therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us go to him in prayer. O God in heaven, we come to you, as we've already mentioned, humbly. We come to worship you, to praise your name. And we ask, as the psalmist does there in Psalm 19, That you would watch over the words of my sinful lips and the meditations of all of our hearts as we gather this evening. That these things would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. For Lord, you are our strength, you are our salvation and our redeemer. And it is in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So Calvin, as he's commenting on this psalm, says that we see here four aspects of the Lord's kingship. We see here four aspects or four features of Christ's perpetual reign and eternal priesthood, he says. The first is that Christ has supreme dominion given to him and invincible power. Supreme dominion and invincible power. And second is there is no boundary to his kingdom. It extends to the whole earth. It is not merely in Zion that he's reigning, not merely in Jerusalem or the kingdom of Israel, but it extends to all the earth. The third is that Christ is anointed both priest and king after the order of Melchizedek, the king of righteousness and priest of the Lord. And the fourth is this new everlasting order of priesthood is better. It is better and it will terminate the temporary and typological priesthood of the Levites. Now this is especially significant as we consider Catholicism and the Catholic Church contrasting there is no perpetuation of the priesthood. Christ is our priest. And as we consider this morning, we have the anointed one who is the anointed king, yes, But he is also our anointed priest. That anointed one speaks of the son of David. Who is spoken of by the Lord in heaven as Lord and called to sit at the right hand of the father. 
anointed priest and anointed king. Well, the first point then this evening is that the Lord gives sovereign rule to the Lord from Zion. The Lord is not declared here in the text. Obviously, we read that large portion of Hebrews, so we know from Hebrews, we know from our context in the history of redemption that this is speaking of one specific son of David. But it is the Lord giving sovereign rule to the Lord from Zion, and therefore we, are, we offer ourselves freely to him through his kingly priest. The Lord has spoken to this Lord from Zion, and in this Lord who is reigning in Zion, we come to the Lord because he is our priest. Our king and our priest through whom, through whose, me, whose mediation we have worship, the opportunity to worship the Lord. Well, there in verse 1, we see the Lord speaking to my Lord. David is writing this psalm, a psalm of David, saying that the Lord says to my Lord. Well, David, of course, is the anointed king in Israel. He is the Lord, and yet he speaks of another Lord. A Lord who is greater than he. A Lord who will come after him. The Lord of all creation is speaking to this coming Lord. And what does he say? He says, sit at my right hand. David affirms that his coming son is greater than him. And if you doubt that's what's going on, look over then to Matthew 22. You don't have to do that now, but you can make note in Matthew 22, verses 43 through 45, Jesus says that the son, his son is greater than he. That's what David says here as he composes this psalm and writes, speaking of a greater son, greater than he, who is more majestic and more powerful. And he says, sit at my right hand until I do something. Until what? What is, what is the Lord going to do? He's, he's going to take all of the enemies and put them at his feet. They will be a footstool under the Lord who will reign at the right hand of the Father. The sovereignty is extending not just throughout the bounds of Israel, but is extending throughout the bounds of the whole earth. Even those who oppose the reign of this Lord will submit. There's a reference here perhaps to the ancient Near Eastern treaties, the suzerain vassal treaties. When the kings would go out and conquer other kings, they would put them down on the ground, and we see this in Joshua. They put their... the kings down on the ground and the conquering king puts his foot on the neck of the conquered king they are subject now to this king who reigns that's what's going on here that the lord who sits at the right hand of the father reigns over these conquered kings though they were enemies before they are subject to him and they cannot break that covenant without incurring wrath upon themselves and destruction well, where is this going out forth? Where is the power, the source of this power, the source of this Lord? The Lord is sending forth from Zion, the text tells us. The Lord that is reigning, the Lord that is called to sit at the right hand of the Father, is sitting in Zion with his mighty scepter. So there's no question that this is the son of David who is reigning in Jerusalem. The ruler sits in Zion this is anticipation of that Davidic king in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
So you can see then the, the easy or necessary pairing of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, how, how well they fit together and what they are declaring to us and promising to us of this coming Lord. Verse 2 then, rule in the midst of your enemies. There's a confirmation of verse 1. Not only has the Lord submitted all the enemies to this Lord who is reigning at his right hand, but he is then commanding that Lord to rule in the midst of his enemies. I have submitted them to you. Now rule over them. He's given all authority in heaven and on earth. As we'll see. Your people will offer themselves freely. We see. There in verse 3. One more comment there on verse 2 as we see that he is ruling in the midst of his enemies. I gave the illustration this morning of the Emancipation Proclamation and how easy it is to rule in the midst of your enemies. It doesn't happen here on earth. Our enemies oppose our rule, but what we see here in this text is not only are they brought under the subjection of the Lord, but he's commanded them to rule over them and given authority and power to do so. The mighty scepter rules in the midst of enemies. They are not able to oppose him, just as we considered this morning. Well, your people then offer themselves freely. They're coming from everywhere to offer themselves freely and joyfully to the Lord. Though the enemies are opposing the Lord, though they're plotting in vain, his elect, his people offer themselves freely. There's no compulsion, but there is eagerness to serve this exalted Lord. In verse 3, we see the text telling us that it is in the day of your The text here in the ESV says power. Calvin translates it, in the day of your review, we can look at the original and and come up with some other options, in the day of your strength, in the day of your wealth, or in the day of your army. We will wear holy garments. In the day of your power, this will happen, and we shall wear holy garments. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Well, the context is clear. David is speaking of the day of the Lord. That judgment day that will come. Where all the people of the Lord will come and offer themselves freely, eagerly anticipating that day. And they shall wear holy garments. We'll not be attired as we would an earthly king. We might speak of our Sunday best, what we put on as we come to church and worship God, but even our Sunday best will be nothing as compared with the holy garments that we will wear when we meet with the Lord on the last day. They'll be given to us by this King of Zion. We might think of Zechariah 3 as the great high priest Joshua is meeting and Satan is their accuser accusing the high priest clothed in rags. And the Lord says, he is my servant, clothe him in clothes of righteousness, clothe him in garments of white. Again, that same reference, similarly in Revelation 21, 11, that we shall have the beauty of the Lamb. That will be our beauty. Not our own holiness, not our own beauty. This is not something that we bring and clothe ourselves, but it is something that we are clothed in. We shine forth his glory and holiness. And beauty. 
The text there in verse 3 then talks about how this will take place. It says it'll, it'll happen from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Sort of a strange way to speak of it, but what, what's happening here is that in the morning we see that there's a, a dew that's spread out over the whole earth. It wasn't there in the, in the evening when we went to bed, but when we woke up, we wake up, we see this dew that's spread out, that there is moisture and it never even rained. It seems as though life is coming up even from the earth without anyone having seen rain poured out upon it. That the Lord is giving life where there was no life. That the Lord is watering the earth when there are no clouds to bring rain. And so we see here that as the dew is coming out of nowhere to soak the ground, so the Lord's people will abound with vitality and potency from all the corners of the earth. Well, how can we be assured that this will happen? Verse 4 tells us that the Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. This is going to take place, beloved. Here again, we think of the decree in Psalm 2, verse 7. It is an immutable decree. And the goodness, the greatness of the fact that the decree does not change, that it is unchanging, is that it is gracious and merciful. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 tells us that this is the only hope of the people of Jacob, that the Lord does not change. He has one plan and he has called his people in mercy and grace. And he doesn't change his mind about that. This is an unchanging degree. And here we find peace and hope and blessing. This will happen. The Lord's not going to change his mind about it. But, but how can it happen? We don't have, we know as Hebrews has told us, the priesthood of the Old Testament doesn't work. I've tried to keep the law and I cannot do it. How is it that this will take place? Well, the text answers that as well. As it says in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Then he speaks to, his, to the Lord and says, you are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. That is how this will take place. We have an eternal priesthood in this son of David. And he is the only mediator between God and man. The only one that is able to make this possible for us. David recalls the blessing to his father Abraham. The blessing that he received from this priest king of righteousness. You could almost... Meditate on what David is thinking as he's writing this psalm and thinking back to the fact that his father Abram in 12 received that promise of blessing. And then in chapter 14, he is receiving a blessing from this priest king Melchizedek who reigns in Salem. The place of peace, as Hebrew tells us. Jerusalem is the city of peace. Melchizedek was likely the ruler there in Jerusalem. That king, that priest king, interceded on the behalf of his father Abraham. That is the order of priest that the son of David will be a part of. 
That is what he's looking forward to. Writing, of course, in the spirit. This is not David composing of his own volition, of his own wishes or hopes, but this is from the Lord. The Lord revealed to David that this would take place. The priest, the order of priest-king that blessed his father Abraham would be that same order of priesthood that blesses all people of all the earth. The Lord Jesus Christ is of the order of Melchizedek. Well, how can an unchangeable decree be graceful, bring grace, mercy, and peace? Well, because it is an unchangeable decree of grace, mercy, and peace. It brings mercy through justice. God is gracious and kind and he does not change in his loving kindness toward his elect people. We have mercy in the Lord because he does not change. He is forever righteous, gracious, and merciful. I am who I am. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, showing steadfast love unto thousands of them. And yet not holding them un. Unpunished, the guilty unpunished. Our mediator is both God and man. He's the son of David here we see. And yet, he is reigning at the right hand of the Father. Reigning in heaven, something only God can do. This is what God has done in coming incarnate. Both God and man, here we see, sitting, reigning, interceding. The king of Zion and king of heaven, son of David and son of God. There we see that same thing in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, that he is the son of David in the flesh. This Jesus Christ, who is the son of God. And his rule goes forth unabolished, unopposed. The king is completely sovereign and his rule is immutable. We cannot approach the throne in our sin, but God has made a way for us. That we can approach his throne through his son, the mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ. We are clothed in Christ's righteousness. This is the imputation of righteousness that we receive. He has taken our sin and given us his righteousness. This is our hope, beloved. Not that we have our own righteousness, but that we have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And there is certainty in this decision that is sworn by oath. Thomas, uh, uh, not Thomas, Wilhelmus A. Brockle talks about the covenant of redemption and theologians debate as to the validity of the covenant of redemption. But what we see in the covenant of redemption is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have made a covenant amongst themselves to redeem the elect of God. And so what Abrakel talks about is that certainty that we see there because each person of the Trinity is working that you might be saved, beloved. The Father is working in sending the Son and the Spirit. The Spirit is working in your heart to enliven you and the Son is working to redeem you and clothe you in His righteousness. We see a picture of that here as we are clothed in righteousness. The Father is declaring this that he has given sovereignty to the Son. This covenant, this decree is unchangeable because he has sworn by something that is greater than all things. Sworn by himself, his own being. 
I would argue that is the covenant of redemption, swearing as he swore before all eternity, making a covenant with himself that he would redeem his elect. Well, here we see the eternal priesthood contradicts some errors in our own day. Contradicts the possibility of dispensationalism or Roman Catholicism. Adam through Abraham, Abraham through David, and David through to all men even today are redeemed through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through his mediation, through his priesthood. It's not through any other priesthood but the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews makes it quite clear that the the sacrifices did nothing except they foreshadowed Christ that would come. We do not need a priest in our own day because we have the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need a priest in this new covenant era and all the old covenant priests were just foreshadowing Christ's mediation. It makes no sense for us to install priests in our own day. We have Christ. Well, this brings me then to the final point, that the Lord confirms his unchangeable decision and thus the nations which are opposing him are overthrown. The nations are overthrown because the Lord is confirming this decision. We see this in verses 5 through 7. The Lord is at your right hand. Here confirming the decree. He says, sit at my right hand at the beginning. Well, now in verse 5 he says, the Lord is at your right hand. And he will shatter the kings on the day of his wrath. Again, speaking of that judgment day to come. The kings of the earth who have determined to oppose his sovereignty will be shattered. Again, we see mention of that in Psalm 2 verse 9. That he is coming to break them with a rod of iron. Dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the fulfillment of that that is declared. It will come. He will execute judgment among the nations. Filling them with corpses. Just as the nations were filled with the dew of the earth of those who came and declared that they were servants of the Most High God, those who opposed Him will also fill the earth. The corpses will fill the earth. Here we see a glimpse of our sin. This is what our sin deserves, beloved. Passages that declare the wrath of God reveal the terror and evil of our sin. In opposing the Lord. And the plea then. And, and urgency that we come to him. And repent. Where do we find blessing? Where do we find shelter? In the shelter of the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be elect from every tongue, tribe and people. But there will also be condemned. For every tongue, tribe and people. Come to the Lord. He will shatter the chiefs over the whole wide work, earth. There in verse 6, his sovereignty and wrath is not just executed upon the rulers, but over the whole earth. It is the rulers that actively opposed him in their own sovereignty, but all of the earth will taste the recompense. No one can stand up to him. Well, in verse 7, we see here another interesting mention, that he is drinking from the brook by the way. This is a mention of war. David understood what war was like. When you are seeking to conquer your enemy, you do not have time for them to regroup. You do not have time to rest and dig a well and set up camp, but you drink by the brook that is on your way so that you can complete your task that has been set before you. That's what's going on here. 
This Lord is drinking from the brook by the way that stands by him so that he can complete his task. And therefore his head is lifted up. He is enlivened from drinking from the brook, but he is also lifted up and enabled to complete the judgment. Set over all the nations, declaring his sovereignty, his rule, all the nations will be judged. Once again, we see the decree of sovereignty is confirmed at the close of the psalm. So although the nations are given time to oppose his sovereignty, they're not held guiltless at the end, on the day of power when the Lord confirms his decree. Justice is enacted because the Lord does not change. He is righteous forever. The evils that we see in the world around us. You can think of any number of evils in the world around us. We could think of human trafficking or abortion. We could think of any injustice in the world around us. In the opposition to the Lord, he will not hold back his wrath poured out upon those who oppose him. Upon those who are committing injustices. His wrath was poured out to the very dregs so that your sin, beloved, could be cleansed and paid for. And he will do the same for all those that oppose him. The wrath of God is poured out on every sin that is ever committed. Either in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we come and find grace and mercy and peace, or you oppose him and you are enduring the wrath of God for all eternity. So what do we hear in this? We hear that there is justice in the Lord. When we look around at the world and we see evil, those evils will be condemned. Those evils will come to an end, beloved. When we look into our heart and see evil, we know that those evils have been condemned in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we come to him and find mercy, repenting of our sins, knowing that he has cleansed us, that we have a conscience sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ. We have holy garments. Well, perhaps you're wondering if the robes are white enough for your sins. We see what our unrepentant sin deserves here, but do not miss also that call to repentance that we had in Psalm 2 and also here in Psalm 110. Perhaps you're wondering if you could ever be saved, but the Lord is perfect. He has perfectly fulfilled the law and bore our sins on the cross. He has made a way. There is no other way by which we shall be saved. No other name given among men but our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no king strong enough to oppose him. There's no sin that is so vile that it can stand up to his righteousness and his reign. It will be conquered by his power and forgiven by his mercy. If we come to him, cleansed by his grace, mercy, and peace. Here we see in the Lord, the son, the king, the priest. In Jesus, we see a perfect savior. The Lord guards our salvation. It is eternal and unchanging. Sending forth from Zion, they're reigning on the seat of grace, the mercy seat. Bringing in the Gentiles of all the earth. 
they're called, and they shall be renewed, appearing like dew on the earth, born not of a physical womb, but born of a spiritual womb. This is the regeneration that Jesus declared to Nicodemus in John 3. That's what the text is talking about. We see that the dew of the earth, speaking of the womb of the morning, birthing holy children through the Spirit. It's offered to all the nations, but its source is the great high priest there reigning in Zion. He is the only hope of salvation And we may pray, live, and hope in his name because of our perfect mediator who is continually interceding on our behalf. Nothing can separate us from his unchangeable grace, Paul tells us. And Calvin closes here by saying, Our great shepherd is tender toward his flock, but he's formidable to his enemies. He's formidable toward thieves and wolves. We saw there in Psalm 2, verse 9, that he holds a rod of iron with which to break the obduracy of his enemies. And then he closes with this quote. Calvin says, How dare we provoke his wrath by a rebellious spirit when he sweetly calls us to himself? He's sweetly calling us, beloved calling us to repentance, calling us to come to him in grace, to find peace. This king of Salem, king of peace, is calling to us. And he has prepared the way for us, beloved. Let us come to him and find peace. Let us go now in prayer.